In the previous lesson, we began to consider in an overall sense the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, in this lesson, which is part two of our introductory um, lessons on these two chapters, we're going to conclude with our preliminary consideration of these seven churches so that beginning in next week's lesson, and I hope you will tell all your friends that we're back in session so they'll return. I know a lot of sickness is going on, but make sure you tell them that we do have three more lessons before we break for Christmas. But next week we will actually begin to look at each church letter individually and we'll go through it exegetically, meaning verse by verse. Now, our outline for this two-part introduction of the Revelation Church, as you can see up here, is basically in three main divisions. Last week, we began to look at the perspective, perspectives of the seven churches and didn't finish that, but we will finish it this morning. Then part two, the problems of the seven churches, and part three, we'll look at the purpose of the seven churches. Under the first section, we learned that there are essentially four different ways or four different views or four different perspectives on these seven churches. Each church, of course, was a real, literal, first-century church. But there were, we know, we talked about the fact that there were at least 1,000 different communities in Asia Minor, in the Roman province of Asia Minor, at the time that John penned this letter. So why did the Lord choose just these seven that we find in chapters 2 and 3? Were they selected merely at random, you know, just by chance? Or was there some purpose in the Lord's selection of these specific seven and in the order in which he wrote those letters. Well, many Bible expositors, including myself, and I'm not really a Bible expositor, I don't know what you would call me, just a housewife who loves the Bible, but uh, many do believe that there was definitely a purpose behind the Lord's selection of the seven churches that he mentioned in, uh, back in Revelation 1, verse 11, was the first time he mentioned them, and that even the order, the chronological order in which he addressed his messages to them was with a divine pr- purpose. We discussed already in our last lesson the fact that the information given in each real, literal, first-century church was not merely for the benefit of that local church assembly. It wasn't just for the benefit of those members of that specific church, but that the admonitions and the warnings of the Lord Jesus serve as guidelines for local churches and for Christians and for the church universal throughout the entire church age. In other words, these seven churches not only represent the entire body of Christ, and the problems and the situations which occur within it as a corporate whole. But they also represent the seven basic types of churches, which you see the Lord omnisciently knew would exist throughout the church age. And not only the types of churches, but also the types of Christians who would exist throughout the church age. The church age being from Pentecost to the rapture. Now we also began to discuss the amazing prophetic perspective of these seven churches in our last lesson. The seven churches, I believe, were purposely chosen by the Lord Jesus in order to prophetically foretell of the historical development of the church itself. In addition to those other three reasons I gave you, I believe that he also did this to foretell of church history. Although not all Bible teachers do believe this and not all pastors believe this, there are many who do, and I'm one of them. In my own studies, 
I have found six basic reasons for supporting this prophetic perspective of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Now, in our last lesson, we discussed the first three of these reasons. We discussed the fact that the book of Revelation is given in general, other than some parenthetical interruptions that explain something or give a little bit added detail about something. But in general, the whole book of Revelation is given in chronological order. And therefore, it would be very consistent with the whole book if chapters 2 and 3 were also given in a purposed chronological order. And I believe that they were given in the chronological order of the church age or the ch or church history. So that was one reason we discussed last time. And the correspondence between the situations of the seven churches, you know, as we will look at them, what their specific problems were and a little bit about them, that corresponds with actual history, with the actual history of what the church went through in seven progressive stages. <clears throat> so there definitely is a correlation between the churches and actual church history. And this correlation from the apostolic church, which is represented by the church of Ephesus, to the apostate church stage, which is represented by the um, church at Laodicea, is also what we discussed in last week's lesson. So if you were not here for that lesson, I do recommend you get the tape or the notes on it. Now, another reason for supporting this view, which states that the seven churches prophetically foretell of the seven stages of church history, is based upon the meaning of each of the Greek city names where those churches were located. <clears throat> the amazing, and I do think this is really amazing, the amazing co correlation between the meaning of the names and the stages of church history has to be far more than just coincidence. Would you not agree? You remember how we talked about what the names actually mean? That really is, to me, very obviously more than just coincidence. <clears throat> Since the Lord Jesus made us a special promise of blessing, remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, he made that blessing to those who would read, hear, and keep the words, remember, the words of the prophecy of this book. Isn't that telling us right then and there that this is a book of prophecy? So why not also look at chapters 2 and 3 as being prophetic? The rest of the book is, so this again supports this view. Well, there are three more reasons um, <clears throat> which support the prophetic perspective of the seven churches, and these are what we're going to consider first of all in our lesson this morning, the, the next three reasons for looking at the seven churches as being prophetic of church history. And then we will move into part two and part three of our outline, which is uh, we'll look at the problems of the seven churches and then the purpose of the seven churches. So let's start by looking at uh, the continuity with Scripture. In the last lesson, we learned how there is a gradual decay of the church seen through these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. What began as a loss of first love for Christ in the apostolic church of Ephesus ended with Christ actually standing on the outside of the church, you know, knocking at the door, asking for them to let him in. And that was, of course, in the apostate church, or he was standing at the door of the apostate church of Laodicea, knocking for entrance. Now, this increase in sin 
and in apostasy is in agreement with other portions of the scripture which do predict a decline in spiritual spirituality as the church you know as church history progresses that there would be a decline you know we start with a loss of first love and we end up apostate well other scripture supports this that there would be a decline in spirituality and that there would be an increase in apostasy in the last days this is exactly what we see in the seven churches what started as a loss of first love has more sin added to it more sin more sin until you finally find a church that has gone apostate now of course remember that within each church there's always those true born-again believers called the overcomers we're not talking about them actually I guess you could say in a sense we're talking about Christendom in general there is a verse in 1st Timothy 4 1 um, 1 and 2 which says now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron there Timothy is or Paul writing to Timothy is talking about in the last days that there would be those who would depart from the faith and that they would be uh, give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils do we see that going on in Christendom today yes we do then in second uh, Peter 2 verses 1 and 2 Peter predicted this he said but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who pri privately or privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction and many shall follow their pernicious or their evil ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of and then the little book of Jude which comes right before our book of Revelation the little book of Jude only has one chapter but the book is primarily about apostasy in the last days um, Jude warns believers to earnestly contend for the faith for there are certain men crept in unawares ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and who deny the Lord Jesus Christ and then Jude warns the Saints he says beloved remember ye the words which were spoken before of the Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ how that they told you there should be mockers in the last times who should walk after their own ungodly lusts you see all of these New Testament scriptures and there are others forewarn of an increasing apostasy within the church or within Christendom and this of course is consistent with the view that sees the sequence of the seven churches as symbolizing church history which increases in apostasy until the Lord is actually standing on the outside of the church you know saying open the door and invite me in now oftentimes those who deny the prophetic element of these seven churches are the same people who teach and preach that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will come on earth when the church has changed the world with the gospel message however <clears throat> the kingdom you know the millennial kingdom the 1000 year kingdom does not come to earth as a result of the work of the church it comes as a result of the merciful intervention 
and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the church, you know, has been commissioned to preach the gospel to all the world, she was never promised a 100% success rate. The church was never promised that she would reach the whole world, that everybody would be saved and therefore enable the Lord to come and set up his kingdom. In fact, the Lord himself said that few would find the narrow way that leads to life, but that many would be on that broad way that leads to destruction. That's in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in the parable of the sower and the seeds, we'll talk more about that parable this morning a little later. Remember, only one of the four soil types into which the seed, the word of God, was planted, only one actually produced fruit. So if you take that literally, which I don't think you can, but there must be some significance in it, one-fourth of the seed sown finds actual you know, soil to, to grow in. So we could say one-fourth of the people that hear the gospel actually respond. I don't know if that's the statistic. I think it's probably even less than that. And neither, really, neither one of these passages that I just meant, mentioned, neither one of them make it sound like the church will reach everybody, do they? Hardly. I mean, few that find the narrow way. And consequently, <clears throat> neither one of these sound like the church is going to make it possible for Christ to come and establish his kingdom. Such teaching simply does not, is not consistent. It does not agree with the word of God. Rather, the scripture speaks to us about an increase in worldwide wickedness. You know, evil men shall wax worse and worse. And not only without the church, but it also speaks of an increase in wickedness and apostasy within the church. And again, I remind you that I'm speaking about Christendom. The true church consists of all born-again believers, no matter what church they're in. Well, that's what I'm going to say about that one. Let's move on and look at a comparison with the parables. I'm still giving you reasons for why I believe the seven churches prophetically foretell of the seven stages of church history. We just talked about the fact that this is con um, consistent with other scripture. Now I'm going to move on and talk about a comparison with the parables of Matthew 13, and this is very interesting. In Matthew 13, now you might want to flip over to Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus gave us seven parables which tell us about the inter-advent period of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, this is the time from his rejection to his return. When I say inter-advent, do you know what advent means? Coming. It's the time between his two comings. Time between his first coming and his second coming. Matthew chapter 13 speaks to us about this period of time. Are we in that period of time? Yes, we are. So this period of time includes the church age, but it also goes, you see, a little bit beyond the church age because the Lord doesn't return, you know, I'm not talking about the rapture, but he doesn't return until after the church age in the second coming to set up his kingdom. So we could say it really begins, this period of time begins at Pentecost, 
but it will go through the seven years of tribulation and end at the time of the Lord's return when he will establish his kingdom on earth. So this is what Matthew 13, these parables, talk about. Now, actually, the seven churches of Revelation could also be said to speak of slightly more than just the church age because the Laodicean church, the apostate church, and all of the unsaved members of the other six types of church also will go on into the seven years of the tribulation period. And they will become part of that ecumenical apostate false church that we read about in Revelation chapter 17. Now someone, if you're really alert, someone might question my statement about there being seven parables in Matthew chapter 13 because, in fact, there really are eight. However, the eighth parable, which is known as the parable of the householder, you'll find it in verse 52, it's just one verse, does not really, that one parable, that last parable, does not really deal with the mystery kingdom. And they do call this a mystery. The inter-advent period of time was a mystery to all the Old Testament writers and readers. It was unknown by them, and so that's why it is referred to, these parables are referred to as the Mystery Kingdom Parables. We have a three-cassette tape mini-series on these parables, the Mystery Kingdom Parables, if you'd like to learn more about them. They talk about the age of time that you and I are in, and they're very, very um, enlightening to study. Well, anyway, um, the last parable, the parable of the householder, does not deal with the mystery kingdom itself. It deals with the stewardship responsibility of the Lord's disciples, the ones he was talking to, the actual disciples, who were to share this newly revealed truth that they had just learned about the mystery kingdom um, to others. And that's what that eighth parable is all about. So it is actually to be considered as separate from the seven which specifically tell us about the extended church age. Now let's briefly just review those seven parables before I compare them for you with the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. In the first four parables, we have the parable of the sower in verses 3 to 9. We have the parable of the wheat and tares in verses 24 to 30 the parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32. Then there is the parable of the leaven hidden in meal, or, you know, the bread dough, and that's in verse 33. In those first four parables, we learn about the intermediate form of the kingdom. When the kingdom of God is not visible, it's not on earth, you know, it, it would not be set up at that time because the Jews rejected the king. So the Lord could not set up his kingdom at his first coming. But he did tell them that it would not, the kingdom would not be visible, but the kingdom would, where, would be where? He said the kingdom would be within you, would be within the hearts of true believers. This is the period of time that he's talking about. The inter-advent period of time is when the kingdom of God exists on earth within believers. And he said that this period of time in these first four parables was to be characterized by a sowing of the seed. And what is the seed? He actually interpreted it for us in that parable. He said the seed is the word of God, or we could say the gospel message, the saving message of Jesus Christ. 
Now, depending upon the condition of men's hearts, which are represented in this parable by four different soil types, um, and this is in the parable of the sower and the seed, there would be different responses to the sowing of the gospel message. And there was also to be a major counter-sowing by Satan who would infiltrate the world and the church with the contaminating influence of his emissaries. He would go about the world and he would sow his seed. He would counter-sow God's good seed, which produced wheat, with his seed, which produced what? Tares. And that's what we learn about in the par- the next parable, the second parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. So this inter-advent age, which largely and mostly consists of the church age, but goes a little bit beyond it into the tribulation, is a time when the righteous wheat, in other words, true born-again believers, would grow side by side with the false, wicked tares. And then in the parable of the mustard seed, we learn that the new form of God's kingdom would have a very small beginning. Well, it did, didn't it? It started with 11 men. Very small beginning as a mustard seed, as a tiny, tiny little seed, but that it would experience great growth, unusual growth. This contrast, contrast, of course, is given to us in the fact that the a mustard seed, which is very, very tiny, as I just said, grows into an unusually large bush, which actually looks like a tree grows very large for the size of the seed. Then in the parable of the leaven, which is what? What is leaven? Yeast, yeast, the yeast or the leaven hidden in the meal. We further learn that evil and sin, and of course leaven or yeast represents sin in the Bible, that it would be very much present in this interval between the two comings of Christ. And we note in particular that it was a woman who placed the yeast into the meal or the bread dough in this particular parable. Notice that. It was a woman. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Then in the parables of the hidden treasure and the valuable pearl, the Lord Jesus uh, taught about his own sacrificial purchase of both Israel, whoopsie, both Israel and his church. That's what he's speaking about in these two parables. The redemption price for Israel and for the church was paid, of course, with what? How did he pay for it? <clears throat> what? Right, with his own precious blood. That's how he paid for to redeem both Israel and the church with, was with his own precious blood <clears throat> and, of course, his life. Now, the seventh parable, I'm going to talk more about these, and I'm just doing this real briefly right now to refresh you on these parables. The seventh parable, which is known as the parable of the dragnet or the final net, compares the kingdom of God <clears throat> to a dragnet, which is the way they fished in the Sea of Galilee, which was cast out into the sea. The dragnet was cast into the sea. And when the fishermen pulled it up, it was full of a good catch, of lots of fish in there. Then when they got to shore, they pulled that net to shore, what did they do? They separated the good fish 
from the bad fish. The good fish were collected in containers, and they were kept. And the bad fish were what? Just cast away, thrown away. Now, this parable serves as a symbolic illustration of the judgment which will occur at the consummation, the end of this new mystery form of the kingdom. The agents of the Lord, who are the holy angels, not men. See, we could never go about separating the good fish from the bad fish. We could never go about separating the wheat from the tares because we can't see the heart and we would make mistakes. So God commissions his agents, the holy angels, to do this separating work. They are the ones who sort the good fish or the wheat from the bad fish or the tares. And the bad fish, of course, are those who refused or who neglected to ask Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and the salvation which he alone offers. But the good fish did. They did ask Jesus Christ into their heart as Lord and Savior. Now, there is a remarkable parallel between between the Matthew 13 parables and the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And although their relationship is not perfect in every way, I mean, you can't take these and examine them with a fine-tooth comb. They're not going to be perfect in every sense or identical in every sense. Yet the parable, the parallel, is certainly too similar just to throw it out and not consider it at all. And I believe that this comparison supports the view which understands that the seven church letters are prophetic of the church age. Because it is without question, everybody agrees and knows that the seven parables in Matthew 13 do describe this church age period of time. Now, the first parable, the parable regarding the sower and the seed, is comparable to the church of Ephesus in that both symbolize the apostolic stage of church history. No, I'm going to have to do something here. You can't see it, but all my transparencies are sliding this way. They're both comparable to the apostolic time in church history, which was the time, of course, of initial sowing, when the gospel message was initially sowed over the, the world. And it was the time of, of great evangelism. And then the parable of the wheat and tares is comparable to the... Um, church at Smyrna. The parable of the wheat and tares reveals for the first time the enemy who countersows tares among the wheats in his uh, wheat in his effort to work against God. And this of course corresponds to the persecuted church of Smyrna. You know when the enemy was trying to destroy the work of God. Then the third parable, the parable of the mustard seed corresponds to the third church, the church at Pergamos. The mustard seed we talked about begins as a very, very small seed which grows quite unusually large. This corresponds to that stage in church history, the third stage, which evidenced great unusual external growth because the church, remember, was aligned with the Roman Empire in an unholy matrimony. They, they uh, compromised in the church and the world really got married together, but it made Christendom grow tremendously large. 
And so these two correspond. Christianity was made the state religion. Then in the parable about leaven, we find a correlation to the church of Thyatira, which is the church of the Dark Ages, when doctrinal compromise entered in through the woman. Who was it that put the leaven into the bread? A woman. Well, in the letter to the church of Thyatira, we will read about a woman who put sin into the church. That woman's name is, who knows, Jezebel. She corresponds to the woman in the parable who was responsible for placing that yeast or that leaven into the meal. In the parable of the hidden treasure, which is about an object of great worth that is dug out of the earth, you know, a man finds this great treasure in the earth, and he's very excited about it, and he goes and sells all. Well, he sells everything he has to buy the land so that he can have that treasure. Well, here in that parable, we find a correlation to the church at Sardis. Uh, Remember what they discovered during this time of church history? The doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, without any works. And remember that wonderful doctrine was, we could say, undug. It was discovered. It was a great treasure. And it was revealed to the world by the great men of the Reformation. The key phrase of the Reformation was the just shall live by faith. Salvation was not through the work system that had been developed under the papal, uh, the papacy, the papacy, under the Roman um, Catholic Church, you know, that, that says salvation is through the church, by being a member of the church, or salvation is through having to take the sacraments, or through infant baptism, or through the selling of indulgences. You know, you could buy your salvation. The hidden treasure, therefore, corresponds, the parable of the hidden treasure corresponds to the church of Sardis, which was the church of the escaping ones. Remember, that's what the word Sardis means, escaping ones. So there's a remarkable comparison here in the parables and in the seven churches. And then the parable of the pearl of great value corresponds to the period of church history represented by the church of Philadelphia. Remember, this is the church of brotherly love. It was a time in history when men and women willingly gave up all that they had in order to take the gospel to other lands. They were willing to sacrifice even their own lives in order to get the word out to other people. This was a time of such great missionaries as Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Adoniram Judson and David Livingston and, of course, many others. And it was the time of Charles Spurgeon and Billy Sunday. I do have some actual photographs of some of these men. And D.L. Moody and a time when great sweeping revivals were just covering whole nations. Men, you see, understood the precious value of the pearl, of the, of the gospel message. They understood the value of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like the Lord in that parable of the great pearl, just like him, they were willing to sacrifice everything for it. And then finally, in the parable of the dragnet which speaks of the final stage of judgment at the end of the church age, we find a correspondence with the seventh letter to the church at Laodicea, the apostate church, 
which will continue to exist right on into the days of the tribulation period. You see, the good fish will be separated from the bad fish at the time of the rapture, won't they? The good fish will be collected up together to be with the Lord, and the bad fish will be left behind. They will just be cast behind to go on into the tribulation, the horrible tribulation period. Of course, again, when the Lord returns at the end, there will be another separation because there will be more good fish. There will be people saved during the tribulation. So there will be another separation of the good from the bad at the end of the tribulation, and the good will go on into the millennial kingdom, and the bad will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Now, as I mentioned previously, there are a number of ways in which this parallel or this correlation does not respond. It isn't perfect. I mean, a parable, you cannot take a parable and have every part line up with some, something doctrinally. Yet, I really do believe that there are too many common elements in the seven parables of Matthew 13 and these seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 to just simply pass over them. I debated about it, should I do it or should I not? But I really think there's too much of a correspondence there to keep that from you. And I believe that they do indicate to us that um, the seven churches of Revelation, just like the seven parables of Matthew 13, do predict for us church history. And we can see that now as we look back from hindsight, we can see that course when they were originally given the people did not realize it so let me quickly review what we've just looked at ephesus the church at ephesus and the first parable the parable of the sow uh, the sowing of the seed tell us of the initial sowing of the gospel but it was not without failure just as there was a loss of first love there was it was not without failure because only one out of four soil types took root the seed took root and produced fruit so it was a beginning, an initial sowing, but not without failure. Then Smyrna compares with the parable of the wheat and tares. There is the identity and the work of the evil one against the church. And we see this in both that church and in that parable. Pergamos and the mustard seed, the third that represent the third stage in church history, we find a remarkable increase in growth from a very small beginning. Thyatira and leaven. The evil is corrupting the purity of the church. Then Sardis and the hidden treasure, an object of great value, is brought out. It is undug, and it brings great rejoicing. Then Philadelphia and the pearl, the value and the purity of the object are worth sacrificing for. Men and women realize that this is something worth sacrificing for. And then in the last one, the seventh of both Laodicea and the parable of the dragnet, dragnet we find that future judgment will occur at the end of this age. There will be a separation of the false from the true at the end of the age. Now the next reason for um, supporting the prophetic element of the seven churches is called the clustering of groups. Because of our time factor, I'm going to let you just read about that in your notes, okay? So make sure you read your notes on the clustering of the groups. And right now I want to go on with our main outline. And here's where we are on our outline because you're probably all confused. 
We are going to now, we've covered three, the first three perspectives of the seven churches. We've looked at them as being actual, real, literal churches in first century Asia Minor. Then we talked about them as being representative churches of the church age. You know, there are Smyrna-type churches and Philadelphia-type churches throughout the church age. Now we, we have just finished covering the largest section where we talked about the pres, uh, prophetic element of these seven churches, that they um, are respective of the church stages, the seven church stages. And now I'm going to talk about the fact that they also are representative of church members or Christians throughout the church age. Dr. Lehman Strauss, he, we had him actually come here and teach us a Bible lesson back a few years. He went to be with the Lord this past summer. He wrote this in his commentary. He said, even though Christ addresses each church as a whole, the message to the overcomer is addressed to the individual. So we also have to look at these church letters as being written to individuals, to you and to me. And as we examine each of them, let's purpose in our hearts, okay, to likewise be examining our own spiritual condition before the Lord. You know, just as there is an Ephesian type of church, there is also an Ephesian type of church member. There are people throughout the church age, there are people today, even some of us, including myself, who have the same problem that the church at Ephesus had. They had lost their first love. They had lost that honeymoon type of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, has Christianity for you become just a performance? Do you sometimes feel like all you are doing is just going through the motions and that the former zeal and the former love for Christ that you once had in your heart, especially right after you were born again, that somehow or another it's gone. You know, that zeal that used to compel you to want to assemble together with believers, that zeal that compelled you to want to read the Bible every day and have your time of quiet with the Lord, and that compelled you to get out there and tell people about your faith. Is that still there? Or have you lost your first love? And, you know, this can ha happen so subtly, and it can happen so... Um, slowly over years that you don't even realize it until one day you just kind of wake up and you say, wow, where is it gone? You know, you don't know how or when or where it's gone, but it just isn't there. Kind of maybe like after you've been married to the same guy for 30 years and you don't have that, maybe don't have that, well, it's really hard to keep that honeymoon kind of love, isn't it? It's really hard. You have to work at it. And you wake up one day and you say, who is this guy in the bed next to me? Well, that can happen with our relationship with Christ. And this is really, it's very convicting. I told you these would be very convicting. And I've been having a real struggle with this because sometimes I feel like, am I just going through the motions? You know, it's gotten to be just something I do every week. I get in the Word and I pump out a lesson. And I don't want that. And I know you don't want that either. I want that first love that I, that I used to have. And fortunately, there is a solution for those of us that may have this problem. Christ does tell them how they can return to their first love. And that's something we all need to, to read about and study about and know. We are to return to the first works. You know, do the things that we did when we first got saved. And that's what I'm going to commit in my heart. I want to start doing more of that. Um, 
But, you know, this is, when you think about this, this happened with the apostolic church. This happened with the church at Ephesus. Do you know who began the church at Ephesus? Yeah, the church itself was begun by the apostle Paul, and he actually spent a lot of time there. He spent two years there teaching the people and training them in the the doctrine. That's why they were so doctrinally sound. Their doctrine was not their problem. And then do you know who their first pastor was other than Paul? I heard it. Timothy. Timothy was their first pastor. And they say that John, who wrote Revelation, was their next pastor. I mean, now that is a church that I would love to have attended. Paul, Timothy, and John? Wow. That's being close to the fire. I mean, they were close to the fire. And yet, what what do we find happened? They lost their first love. So if this can happen in a church that close to the original fire... What could happen to us some 2,000 years later? Well, we know what's happened to Christendom some 2,000 years later. Jesus is on the outside of the door knocking to come in. But this, is, this, this first church, especially to me, is convicting about not losing our first love because we can be as doctrinally sound as we can possibly be and still not have that burning love, that honeymoon love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So make sure you come back next week and let's find out how we can keep that love for him in our hearts. And then perhaps there are some of us who are Smyrna-type Christians, and we can be a little bit of several of these. I mean, you can be an Ephesus-type Christian and have a little, but what, what when you are an Ephesus-type Christian, that is the dominant thing in your life at the particular time. You can change, too. You can start out as an Ephesus-type Christian and become one of the others. You know, you can turn into a Pergamos type of Christian. But at any one stage in your life, you will be dominated by one type. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Like right now, if I'm struggling with having lost my first love, but I'm doctrinally sound, I would be an Ephesus-type Christian. But I also might be being persecuted on the side. Maybe not maybe that isn't the dominant thing going on in my life. So I wouldn't be categorized as a Smyrna type Christian. But there may be some of you today who that's the that's the dominant thing happening in your life. You are being persecuted for your faith in Christ. You are paying a high price for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be suffering um, because of your outspoken boldness for him. <clears throat> or maybe you're being persecuted um, at home, you know, by your husband who doesn't understand your faith and doesn't believe as you do. Or you could be being persecuted by your own children if you came to know the Lord later in life and they, they are not saved. Or you could be being persecuted by your parents. Or perhaps you are a fervent believer who practically stands alone in your commitment for Christ in your church. And don't think that doesn't happen. You might be one of the few overcomers in your church, and you're being persecuted for taking the Bible literally or for whatever. Or perhaps this is the case in your Sunday school class. I know these things go on. I've been there. And then there are also Pergamum-type church members. Type of church member is one who is really trying to ride the fence. They are unequally yoked together with the world because they are preoccupied with materialism or with the flesh or with themselves 
and you know how they are perceived and how they are accepted by the world they love the world too much they also you know love Christ but you can't really love and serve two masters can you but they're trying to do that that's why I say they're trying to ride the fence between both Christianity and the world they're not willing to cut the cord completely with this present world and with its possessions and we surely have plenty of them in this country and with the pleasures of this world and this of course was the problem with the rich young ruler who came to Christ but was not willing to sell his possessions in order to follow him. And it wasn't that Christ really wanted him to sell his possessions. He wanted to see if the man was willing in his heart to make that break with the world. But the man wasn't, so he went away very sad. A Pergamum church member is unwilling to pay the price of being a devoted disciple of Christ, you know, to take up his own cross and to follow after the Lord's footsteps. He or she will lower biblical standards in order to court the world. And in doing so, he brings disrepute upon the name of Christ. And therefore, this type of person is really doing tremendous damage to their own testimony they're doing damage to the testimony of their local church and of course there are very few who will come to christ because of their testimony they will look at them and they say well if that's a christian i don't see any difference in them and the world i don't see any difference in the way they act and the way they talk and the way they look and the way they smell and what they listen to than i do with the world so What's the big deal? Why should I become a Christian? And then each church generally has its Thyatira-type Christians or members. Now, this was the church, remember, that tolerated the false prophetess Jezebel, the one who stuck the leaven into the meal or into the church. Jezebel led many into sin by believing in false doctrine. A Thyatira type of church member lives with sin, but they try to justify that sin by false doctrine, with their false doctrine. Or they try to hide it from the others of the church. But Christ reminded the Thyatirans, we'll see this when we look at the letter that he wrote to them, he reminded them that he is the one with eyes like a flame of fire. And he is the one with burnished bronze feet, those feet of judgment. So no sin escapes his all-seeing, penetrating vision or his judgment. They might be able to hide it from the others, and they might be able to cover it up with their false doctrine. But he sees everything. He knows everything. This was the church, remember, that corresponds to the leaven being mixed in the meal. So if you are a Thyatira-type Christian who is living in sin, and you know it, Um, it, it, but you're trying to justify it by false doctrine or by hiding it, perhaps, and maybe you're even trying to rationalize the fact that it isn't hurting anyone else, you're wrong because the Scripture says a little leaven spoils the whole lump. She just put a little yeast into that lump, but we went into the dark ages because of that. 
And then, too, we should examine ourselves to see if we maybe are a Sardis type of Christian. Now, this was the church, remember, which undug or received, found that great uh, treasure. And it caused them to rejoice greatly and um, to really go about serving the Lord with great enthusiasm and fervor. However, and I'm talking about in the church history, of course, the time when they realize that salvation is not by works, but by faith, you know, by grace through faith alone. And this was the time of the Reformation when men were really rejoicing over having rediscovered the Scripture. You know, the printing press came into being and people were able to actually have their own copy of God's Word and not just hear about it and have it interpreted to them by um, a, a clergy, a hierarchy of religious men. Um, but they could actually read it for themselves and see what it has to say and everybody was excited and the Reformation just was a fantastic time of rejoicing. There was a lot of persecution as well, but great time of rejoicing. However, shortly thereafter, after the Reformation began, the people began to fall asleep. And this became, it had such a wonderful beginning when they undug this treasure and they were so excited. But in time, this became known as the sleeping church, the church at Sardis. Many Protestant churches today, sad to say, had such a wonderful beginning, but today they're sleeping. They're, they have fallen asleep. And so this consequently represents the type of church member who can't really seem to get excited about Christ no matter what happens. He's in his pew maybe week after week, week but he's asleep. So all of you asleep now, you can all wake up. <laughs> These are the people who drag themselves into church, and an hour later they drag themselves back out, but they're, they really haven't heard anything that has caused them to, and maybe there's nothing worth hearing. I don't know. That's probably the case. But they just drag in and drag out, and they're sort of in a spiritual stupor, and nothing much is happening in their lives. In fact, there is very little evidence of any spiritual fruit because this is the dead church and that's a sad if you're a sardis type church member you need to wake up and you need to be alive again and does the lord give a remedy well i think he does and we need to find out about it when we study that church well thankfully there are also philadelphia type of christians and i would pray and i would believe that that's what most of you are, I hope, or that at least this is the type of Christian that you want to become. This is certainly the type of Christian I want to become. I haven't arrived, but this is the kind of Christian I would like to be. The Philadelphia <clears throat> church, remember, was the church of the open door. It's the church with the missionary heart, the church that is a pearl to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the church which has kept sound doctrine and is faithful to preach the whole counsel of the word of God and has not denied the name of Christ. This is the type of Christian that all of us should be. We should be Christians with a zeal to know Christ increasingly better through his word. And I guess that is what we're trying to do, right? So in a sense, we know that this is the kind of Christian we want to be or we would not be here this morning. 
giving up our morning in order to be in God's Word. And we should also be try to be um, zealous like the Philadelphians in our zeal to get out into the world and tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't keep this precious pearl of the gospel to ourselves. We should be willing to sacrifice all, all of our talents, our time, our treasures, mostly our time, in order to get out there and tell people about Jesus Christ. And what a better time to do that than at Christmas when everybody is, I mean, they're, a lot of them are centered on Santa Claus, but at least the Christmas is the birth of Christ. And this is a time that you can give people tracts and give people little Bibles and, you know, talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's try to use this time wisely to be Philadelphia-type Christians in our witness. But then God forbid that there should be, and this will take you a while to read so you can be looking at that. Paul Spivey used to go to church here, and he was a great artist, and he did that for us. And it's really funny if you can read it while I'm talking. (laughs) You won't hear what I'm saying. But God forbid that there might be some Laodicean-type church members among us here this morning. But in a group this size, there well could be. Um, These are the people who do not even know the Lord Jesus Christ. They are those who may have all the facts about him up here in their heads, but they have never internalized those facts into true faith in their hearts. They go through the motions of churchianity, but they know nothing at all about true Christianity. They engage in all of the ritual without any of the reality. You know, they haven't moved the facts 18 inches down to their heart. They have not internalized the fact that Jesus Christ died for them, for their sins, and therefore he is deserving of their total submission and surrender to him. And they have not maybe realized that they are the sinner for whom he died and that they need to ask his forgiveness and trust that his shed blood was to cover their sins. And these are they who will be so, so tragically shocked as they stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and say to him, Lord, Lord, it's me. You know me. Don't you remember all those good things that I did for you down there in that first Bapto-Methodarian church of lukewarm city? You know me. (laughs) And what will he say? If they're a Laodicean type of church member, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I thought I had. Yeah, I do have a picture of that. Depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a personal love relationship with you. You never surrendered to me. You never came to me. You just knew about me in your head. So if this should happen to describe one of you here in this room and you know it in your heart that you have never truly surrendered to Christ, that you have never been born again, then I would beseech you now before it is eternally too late that you will take the facts of his life, the Lord's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and even his ascension, and internalize them. And know that he died for you. Acknowledge him as your savior, savior and submit to his lordship over your life. All you have to do is say as simple a th- prayer as, Lord, save me. Come into my heart. I know I'm a sinner. Save me. And he will do it. Well, let's look quickly, very quickly, at the problem of the seven churches. 
And the basic problem we could say in a nutshell with each one of the churches is that they are a mixture of good and evil. Jesus told us that during the entire existence of this inter-advent stage or this inter-advent kingdom, there would be a combination of wheat and tares existing together. In other words, wherever true believers would assemble, there would always be false believers interspersed among them. There was and there is no perfect church. If you're looking for the perfect church, you won't find it. There weren't any in the apostolic days. So there hardly will be any today because all churches consist of good and evil. I'll just quickly tell you about each one of the seven churches. In Ephesus, for example, there were false teachers trying to get in. Even in the apostolic church, the church begun by Paul, pastored by Timothy and by John, there were false teachers trying to come in. And then in Smyrna, there were blaspheming Jews who Christ said were of the synagogue of Satan. In Pergamos, there was the false teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans, and we'll talk about them. And then in Thyatira, of course, there was the false teaching of Jezebel, and there was sin in that church. In Sardis, there was dead members all over the place, (laughs) laying there sleeping or dead. And then in Philadelphia, even the good church, there was the existence of the synagogue of Satan. In Laodicea, of course, the church was dominated by apostates, people who did not even know the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet within each church, there were the overcomers, the true believers. So each church is pictured for us, you see, as having a combination of good and evil. I think somebody's trying to come in. I think it's our singer. So let me quick wrap this up and go quickly to the purpose of the church The purpose of the church. We've said that the seven churches really represent the complete body of Christ, you know, the church universal. What is the purpose of the church of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? What is the purpose of the church? Is the purpose of the church to redeem the entire world? is the purpose to reach out and change all of mankind by bringing everyone to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the purpose? Is that why God made the church? Well, ideally, I mean, that would be wonderful. But that isn't what the Scripture teaches the purpose of the church is. The Scripture teaches that this will never happen. If it was, if this was the purpose of the church, then all we could say as we gather here this morning is that after 2,000 years of trying to fulfill this purpose, we have miserably failed because there have been and there are far more many people who go into a Christless eternity than those who do not. So all we could say if that is the purpose of the church is that the church has failed. Furthermore, rather than the world because of the church's influence, rather than the world getting better and better, the world has gotten progressively worse. So again, we'd say we had failed. So do these facts mean, in fact, that the church has failed in its purpose? No, not at all. Because the plan of God for the church was never to bring in this golden age of the millennial kingdom. The purpose of the church was not to bring in a golden age here on earth. Nor was God's plan that the church would successfully redeem 
the entire world. The purpose of the church was not to make perfection in this world. So what then is the purpose of the church? Well, Paul basically gave us the answer in 1 Corinthians 9.22, uh, where he tells us what his own purpose was. And his own purpose, he said, was to save some. You see, the greatest evangelist the church ever has seen, the Apostle Paul, he knew and he understood that he would never be successful in reaching the majority. He understood that he would only be able to save some and that likewise the true this was true with the true church of Christ the majority will never listen have you found that to be true the majority will never listen the church will always find that approximately three-fourths of the seed and I think it may even be higher the seed that they sow will not produce fruit the church will always be a mixture of wheat and tares. But this does not mean that the church is a failure. God, through his church, is calling out a people for his name. And that is the purpose of Christ's church, to call out a people for his name, to call out a bride for his son. The very word for church in Greek is ekklesia, You've all heard that word, I'm sure. Ecclesia literally means called out ones. The church is a group of called out people. It is a called out group of God's people. And this group reaches across and through all kinds of barriers. Just look around you. It reaches through racial barriers. It reaches through national barriers. It reaches through Jew versus Gentile barriers. It reaches through sex barriers, generation barriers, age barriers, denominational barriers, and whatever type of barrier you want to put up. The true church reaches through all of them. There is a remnant of true believers in every type of church in every generation throughout the church age. So the important question for each of us to answer is, are we, am I, ask yourself, am I a member of Christ's true church? Now, I don't mean are you a member of your local church. Are you a member of the true universal barrier-crossing church? You know, the bride, the true bride of Jesus Christ. The body, he is the head, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know for sure that you are, if you don't know that you are, please come see me after we break because we can take care of that right this morning. But if you know that you truly are a member of the church universal, the church, the true church of Christ, not Christendom, but the true church, then what type of local church are you in? That's something that you need to examine as we go through these seven churches. What type of church are you in? Are you in a dead Sardis type of church? Are you in a Pergamum world-loving church? You know, maybe through these seven churches, the Lord will be calling you out of that type of church, especially if you have children, and they need to be influenced by a godly Philadelphia type of church where the Bible is taught in its full counsel. But then, more importantly, let's ask ourselves as we study these seven churches, what type of Christian am I? 
And if you don't know, and probably a lot of us right now don't know for sure what type of Christian we are and maybe what type of Christian we are at this stage in our life. Maybe we were once an Ephesus, I mean a Philadelphia type Christian, but we've slagged. Maybe we've fallen asleep. Maybe we've lost our first love. Whatever, let's be willing and open to our, examine ourselves and to pray about this so that our eyes and our ears will discover what we need to discover about ourselves and about our own walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear what he has to say by way of a remedy if we're not what we should be. And let's purpose in our hearts to be willing to take the cure, even if it hurts, and to do all that we can to be all that we can be for him. Okay? We're going to have a real special treat because we've got